Hi, this is Dana Stevens, Slate's movie critic, here with a spoiler special podcast on Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows Part 2, the last installment of the eight-part Harry Potter series. And uh, with me from the DC Slate Studios is Dan Coyce. Dan writes on film for The Washington Post, The New York Times, The Village Voice, Slate on occasion, and other outlets far and near. So hi, Dan. Hey, Dana. Who, of course, was fated. Destiny writ writ long ago that you would be in here spoiling this last Harry Potter with me. I think we've done every Harry Potter movie that's come out since I've been a movie critic. Uh, I believe I believe that's correct. I as think long as there have been spoilers and, and yeah. Harry Potter, we have done all the movies, which I think at this point probably adds up to four or five. Yeah, um, I've been here to explain what the hell is going on to you all along. Absolutely. Yeah, you're my Potter consultant because, yep. well, do you want to give your cred as a Potter consultant? Uh, I read all the books like seven zillion times. Basically, and didn't you, uh, you just wrote something for Slate that's a magnificent sweeping overview of the whole series, book and movie? That's the headline, yeah. Um, I wrote something to accompany your review, which I'm very excited to read, um, which is, yeah, an overview of the way that the Potter movies as a franchise uh, have worked so well um, and how they righted themselves after seeming at first to be just quite ordinary studio product. Um, to turn into something significantly more interesting and special than that. Where do you trace that? You think it was, it's with the with the third movie when when uh, Chris Columbus stepped out and Quaron stepped in as a director? Yeah, I mean that's the argument I make, and and of course quite a bit of it has to do with Chris Columbus stepping down because he was he's not a great director. He is a terrific producer, it seems, based on the the output of the movies since then. But he's not a great director. He's not particularly a visionary. Um, you just revisited was, all the movies in order, right? Yeah, I watched all eight of them in 48 hours. <laughs> so you're, you're, um, you're on a real Harry Potter bender right now. Yeah, I, I'm basically speaking in spells. Ridiculous! Um, but... Uh, but yeah, I mean, so the part of the argument is that Columbus was gone. But part of the argument too is that at that point, David Heyman, who's been the producer of the entire series, and um, and Warner Brothers, the studio, had a real decision to make. Um, and that decision was: Do you hire another Chris Columbus? That is, do you hire another creature of the studio system who will get your product out on time, who's not risky, who's not going to take a lot of chances, and who will give you something that will make a shit ton of money, the way the first two Harry Potter movies did? Um, or do you assume that you'll make a shit ton of money no matter what you do, um, and hire someone interesting to make something? bigger and better than maybe Chris Columbus ever could. And they went that direction. They hired Alfonso Cuaron, who at that time had only um, uh, directed four features, only two of them in English. Um, and he was not a known quantity inside the studio. Was it and after I, Itumama Tambien or before? It was after Itumama Tambien. And, you know, he had done A Little Princess previously, and he had done uh, that New York set version of Great Expectations, both of which were interesting. But none of them said necessarily this is a guy you can entrust your, you know, $250 million franchise to. Um, but they chose him, and he made a movie that for a lot of critics is the best or the most enjoyable of the Harry Potter movies. It certainly is the one... That's The Prisoner that, of Azkaban. That's the one he made, right? Right. Prisoner of Azkaban, the third one. Um, the one that introduced um, Remus Lupin and Sirius Black um, and Peter Pettigrew and the one that really made it clear, I think, to future directors, future actors, and to the studio and producers themselves that you could aspire to something more in a Harry Potter movie, that it could still make money, even even sometimes, albeit a tiny bit less money than the other Harry Potter movies, um, but it could be something real and something fascinating and could really uh, – be an artistic achievement all on its own. You know, the way I describe it in the piece, I think, is that Quaron was the first director to show people that you could have someone's vision, a director's vision, walking hand in hand 
with J.K. Rowling's vision, not just trailing behind it, trying to f- pick up things as you go along. Right. Well, this particular series or franchise, whatever you want to call it, this group of movies really depends on a lot of people's visions coalescing, right? Because, I mean, right. you could say in some ways, and I kind of argue this in my review, that, that the production designer, Stuart Craig, who's also been with the series since the beginning, is one of the behind-the-scenes auteurs of the whole thing. I mean, he's just created this incredible world. It's not just that it, there's neat-looking sets that they're walking around in. It's that there's almost depth to it. I mean, it's almost like there's kind of emotional 3D or something, you know, historical. 3D, you have a sense of, of what lies behind the different walls at Hogwarts and, and how the spaces relate to each other and to the character's history. Right. Well, that's a real benefit of the series on the whole being set in the same place for almost all eight movies. I mean, Hogwarts, you know, the old – what people always want to say is, oh, Hogwarts is as much a character as anyone else. But in this case, it really is true. Hogwarts in, in this last movie – and let's maybe get into this a little bit. Hogwarts in Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows Part Two is a character in that it exists on its own and it fights on its own behalf. Um, the movie follows – uh, Harry and his friends in their sort of last desperate quest to find the last few Horcruxes, which are objects in which Voldemort, the evil Lord Voldemort, has uh, has spirited away part of his soul. Um, so if they destroy those Horcruxes, the Voldemort is susceptible to death. He can be killed. He's not immortal as he had been before. Um, and that search takes them in the end back to Hogwarts, um, reunited with most of their classmates, reunited with their teachers, um, and – the movie ends, the last hour of the movie, I think, maybe even more, ends in one gigantic climactic battle called the Battle of Hogwarts in the book um, in which students and teachers and friends and family and the castle itself fight against Voldemort, his Death Eaters, and the dark creatures that he has on his side. Um, and it's a pretty epic battle sequence. I mean, it's no Helm's Deep, but it's pretty impressive. Um, and one of the things that is most satisfying about it for fans of the books and of the movies, I think, is the way that Hogwarts itself plays a part in that defense. The the um, suits of armor come to life. Um, Professor McGonagall brings them to life and sends them off into battle. Um, the the paintings, all those wonderful talking and moving paintings that have been a feature in, in the movie since the beginning, um, send messages along to each other and help. Um, in the book, there's a great scene which sadly doesn't make it into the movie of all the desks of Professor McGonagall spurring a bunch of desks down a hallway to attack a bunch of Death Eaters. Oh, that would be such so great on film. I'm surprised yeah. they didn't animate some desks. I that would be really very understand. Sorcerer's Apprentice kind of scene. Yes, I didn't really understand why that didn't make it in. But in general, you get this feeling that you've lived in this place for so long. I mean, whether you've read the books or not, not by now, Dana, you spent 20 hours in Hogwarts, essentially. Right. Yeah, um, no, I, I talk about this in my review, too. And I think this has come up in other times that I've written about Harry Potter is that despite myself, this this series has won me over through the movies alone, in spite of the fact that I don't think any of the movies are, are flawless, far from it. I think they all have dull stretches, especially for a non-connoisseur of the books. But mm. but there's just an, an integrity to the whole series that I really respect. I feel like people that respect the books are trying to do justice to them and to the millions of fans all over the world. And there's just something really moving about that. But still, but also not hewing blindly to them in a way that makes them impenetrable to you. I mean, I think you sense that loyalty to the books, but you also sense a willingness to make the movies their own things. Um, which I think is. Oh, yeah, really there's no way they would have won me over if they weren't their own things, right? I mean, if they right. were a, a shut out kind of connoisseurs only world, they would, they would, they would turn away viewers like me. Right. Um, so I'd love to um, talk a little bit about um, some of the performances in this. Um, you know, it's. 
we've lived with these kids specifically, these three kids, Emma Watson, Rupert Grint, and Daniel Radcliffe, who play the the main trio. You know, we've lived with them again for 20 hours. We've seen them in an almost sort of a Michael Apted type way. We've seen them grow up, grow up on film. Um, Michael and, Apted being the director of Seven Up, which follows the documentary that follows a bunch of British kids throughout their lives. Right. And so, I mean, we don't get to see them when they're 42 or 49. We do get to sort of see them when they're 36. Spoiler alert. Um, but uh, but I really enjoyed what this movie gave these kids. Um, it gave them chances to sort of reach into the basket of, of real acting talent that they have earned over the course of these movies. Um, and it gave them each – gave each of those characters sort of great moments for us to say – goodbye to them, which is really, for a fan like me, that's what we want out of a movie like this. We want our our last glimpses and our last chances to see those characters to be really satisfying and to give us sort of that emotional boost. Um, did it play that way for you, too, as someone who didn't necessarily have the affection for the characters from the books, but just knew them through those three actors? Well, for the main for the main kids, it definitely did. There were there were a lot of valedictory moments with um, with staff members and other lesser kid characters that I didn't know as well that, mm-hmm. you know, didn't turn me off. But I didn't I didn't quite get the charge out of, you know, seeing Emma Thompson's teacher character and those various characters for the last time. There was still something sweet, though, about just knowing that all those actors had showed up on the set for, you know, to be filmed for an hour or something like that. I'm sure they right. were handsomely paid for their appearances. Right. Um, yeah, I, uh, I joke in my piece that the the real achievement of the Harry Potter series is that an entire generation of English actors now have wonderful summer homes. Dan, let me just stop you before we get into major spoilage of this last installment for a word from our sponsor. This month's Slate podcasts are very happy to be sponsored by Bing, the search engine that helps you decide. So by way of testing out Bing for this particular segment, I just binged Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows Part 2 while logged into Facebook on Bing. And uh, and what happens that's quite nice is that in addition to rolling out the nearest places to see it, but it also has this social search feature, which is really nice where you can see what your Facebook friends are reading and looking at. So, for example, I can see that one person has been watching the Apple trailer for Harry Potter Part 2. Somebody else has read a review of Harry Potter Part 2 that's linked to. So it's a way of winnowing things down, not just everything that's out there in the internet universe, but stuff that the people that you care about are caring about. So if you find yourself wanting to see Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows Part 2 and try to get some tickets for this probably already sold out first weekend, go ahead and bing it. So, Dan, let's get back to the serious spoilage. So on their way to this big final battle at Hogwarts, uh, the the kids go through a lot of big action set pieces, which I imagine come straight from the book and which I imagine readers are going to be curious to hear how they're staged and how they play out. Do you want to talk about those? Sure. Well, the first one, um, you know, the last movie left off with Dobby, the house elf, dying um, at uh, Shell Cottage, which is where Fleur Delacour and Bill Weasley live, um, and uh, Harry burying him. And this movie opens up there. Um, And and from there, Harry and his friends plan a raid on Gringotts, which is the main wizarding bank. Um, It's run by goblins uh, who are these, uh, you know, little knobby creatures – um, who are in charge of all the money in, in uh, the wizarding world. Um, and uh, and with the help of a goblin who has his own sort of ideas about why he might help Harry and his friends, Harry and Hermione and Ron, uh, infiltrate this previously uh, uninfiltratable bank, Gringotts, and uh, steal one of the horcruxes out of someone's vault. Um, it's a little cup that once belonged to the to the founder of Hufflepuff House. Um, and uh, that scene is pretty great. You know, it's done almost exactly as it is in the book. And the real uh, center of it is this enormous dragon, uh, uh, 
uh, in the book described as a sort of a pale, actually blind dragon who's been locked underground for dozens of years, who serves as sort of the last line of defense uh, for all these vaults at Gringotts Bank. And um, it's really quite a quite an amazing piece of special effects and one of the great um, triumphs, I think, of the special effects in these movies is this is this pale, awful, sickly-looking, wounded dragon who uh, clearly yearns for freedom. And uh, after Harry and his friends get the cup, um, they jump on the dragon's back and bust out of the bank, um, flying off into the air. It's a pretty great sequence. What did you think? Yeah, I have to say about the dragon, I mean, my only thoughts on the dragon are just that I just, this is something I really appreciate about the series, is that that was not a one-dimensional D&D kind of fire-breathing dragon. He was a fire-breathing dragon guarding the entrance to a vault full of treasure, but he didn't feel like an undifferentiated dragon. And, and the idea right. that he had been sort of pitiably, pitiably abused also adds to your to your hatred of, you know, this this world that the, the kids are trying to conquer. And I just thought that that little touch of, uh, you know, the cruelty of the dragon being made worse by the cruelty that had been shown toward the dragon was a really nice human touch. Right. So they escape. They fly off um, into the distance. They uh, have the cup but don't have any way to destroy it because they've lost the sword of Gryffindor. Um, and, uh, and Harry – at that moment, Voldemort finds out that the cup has been stolen, and that's the moment that he realizes that Harry and his friends are finding and destroying Horcruxes. Um, Harry can see into Voldemort's mind because of this connection. That has that always had. been true throughout the whole series and throughout the, all it the books? It started in uh, four and five uh, that Harry began to have flashes. Remember, there's a whole sequence uh, in the fifth movie, I believe, um, in which. Uh, in which Snape tries to teach Harry to shield himself, to block Voldemort's mind from his own. But Harry's never really been able to master that. He's never been able to block that connection between him and Voldemort. Um, and, uh, and so he sees at times of great passion or great excitement or great fury what Voldemort sees in that. And he realizes from Voldemort's thoughts, which are of protecting the last of the Horcruxes, that the final Horcrux is hidden somewhere in Hogwarts. Um, they make their way back to Hogwarts. They meet Dumbledore's brother, Aberforth Dumbledore. Um, uh, and they uh, meet all of their friends back at Hogwarts. And while Voldemort and his crew begin attacking the castle, Harry and his friends set off to find both the last of the Horcruxes and a way to destroy the Horcruxes. So um, Ron and Hermione head down into the Chamber of Secrets, which you probably don't remember anymore. Uh, because it's from the from, second movie, right? From the second movie, yes. It's where Harry, tiny Harry, then 12 or whatever, um, killed a, basil- a basilisk, um, a, an enchanted, extremely poisonous magical creature. Um, Her- uh, Ron and Hermione grab a fang from the basilisk and, de- and destroy the cup. They also have their first kiss down in that yes. in that chamber. Yes, in a hilarious moment of uh, passionate, evil-destroying uh, lust. They have their first magical kiss. Um, that got a huge response from my audience, by the way. They went, like, insane. Were there a lot of kids in the audience when you saw it? Yeah, it was pretty – I mean, it was heavily – I think it was heavily 15-year-olded, my audience. Mm-hmm. And um, they went nutso when Ron kissed Hermione. That was the biggest response. I mean, way bigger than when Voldemort got killed. And bigger uh, than Harry's first kiss? I guess that was oh, movies yeah. ago now, so you can't remember. Yeah, but... that was several movies ago. But Harry's but first kiss But all the shippers was... are, are like Ron Hermione shippers, right? Yeah. I mean, they're, they're, they've all, I mean people like Ginny Fine. Um, but her and Harry – Ginny is there, so Harry has someone to fall in love with. Ron and Hermione are always the couple who are forever destined for each other, and so people go crazy about them. And so there was, there was real fan service in that moment. They, um, you know, in the book, it's sort of tossed off and funny. It happens in front of Harry. It happens in the Room of Requirement. Um, 
one of the things I liked about the movie is that in several moments they gave characters better big moments more movie-ish big moments than they had in the books. That kiss is a great example of that. You know, they have water streaming everywhere and they've just destroyed the cup and they're both flushed and excited and then they have a huge movie-style kiss. Yeah, the timing uh, of that is really nice. It's comic yeah. and romantic at the same time. Um, uh, and, you know, I don't... It seems like going through everything at this point is sort of foolish. I mean, you either know the books or you don't. But what the big sort of other reveal of the final section of the movie um, answers the question that I'm that I think a lot of people who weren't familiar with the books had, and that I certainly had when the books were going on, which is what's the story with Snape? Is he good or evil? Um, is he really on Voldemort's side, or has he really been helping um, Dumbledore and the Order of the Phoenix all along? Even though he killed Dumbledore at the at the end of the sixth movie, um, and this movie reveals that he has been on the side of good, specifically on the side of Harry all along. And um, and the reason for that is that he has he loved Harry's mother. He spent much of his life desperately in love with her, even though she married someone else. Um, he tried to save her when Voldemort was going to kill her. He mourned when she was killed by Voldemort, and he promised Dumbledore um, that he would protect Harry for as long as he possibly could. And so then that flashback was really confusing. The flashback to to baby Harry and the moment that his mother is killed was confusing to me. So what's supposed to happen then is that in addition to killing his parents, Voldemort somehow embeds. Harry becomes like a human horcrux. He embeds part of his soul in Harry. Yes. So that's the takeaway from from this is that Harry in the end has to sacrifice himself to Voldemort willingly because – Harry, as Dumbledore describes him, is the horcrux that Voldemort never meant to make. When Voldemort killed his mother um, and then tried to kill Harry, uh, part of his soul actually became embedded in Harry. That's why they've had that connection. That's why Harry can see into his mind. That's why they have so much in common, why Harry has been able to speak with snakes the way Voldemort could. And and why why was he not just able to kill two-year-old Harry? That seems like pretty easy for the Dark Lord to kill a two-year-old. The explanation that was always given in the books is that there's an ancient kind of magic that happens when someone sacrifices themselves out of love for you. They give you a kind of magical protection. And so by sacrificing herself to save Harry – her mom gave him a kind of magical protection against Voldemort that meant that he couldn't kill Harry without doing substantial damage to himself. Um, oh, I love it. Oh, I didn't expect the answer to that question to make me all choked up. That's very Yeah. Sweet. Well, one of the things that I've always really loved about this series is that, you know, J.K. Rowling wrote it when she was a – she came up with the idea when she was a single mother. Um, and much and of her the own series, mother had, had just died, right, before she yes. started writing the books. Yes. And so much of the series is wrapped around not just the notion of love. But this notion of, of filial love, of the love of mother and child um, and what happens when it's absent and what happens when – and how it can last forever even past death. And I think that's a really touching thing for a blockbuster $2 billion Hollywood series to revolve around. Speaking of that, let's talk about the moment when uh, when Harry uses the – what's it called? The um, – the... The stone that brings people back to life and he gets to the revisit his parents? Stone. The resurrection stone. Right. Yeah. So there's a, there's a scene right before his final confrontation, his final duel with, with Voldemort where he uses this resurrection stone to basically invoke the ghosts of, of his, some of his beloved people and they, they gather around him to give him courage. Right. And, you know, it's, it, well, it's one of the three Deathly Hallows of the title. It's a, a long considered legendary stone that can bring the dead back to life but only to show them to you, not to really interact with them. Harry can find it in his allowed to use it at the moment that he accepts his own death, what he believes is going to be his own death at the hands of Voldemort, the death that he needs to endure to kill off that last Horcrux. 
um, so that Voldemort is vulnerable. Um, and it's a really beautiful moment in the books and in the movie. Um, his mother, his father, Sirius Black, his godfather, and then Remus Lupin, um, his teacher who has just died in the Battle of Hogwarts. That's the David Thewlis character? The David Thewlis character, yeah, who, who's the Defense Against the Dark Arts teacher in Alfonso Cuaron's movie in the third movie. Um, the four of them appear to him. They give him comfort. They assure him that they'll be with him always as they say – he asks them, why are you here? Why are you here right now? And they say, we never left. And so even when he drops the stone, he knows that they are with him, that the that the dead walk with him on this, what he believes to be his final walk. That's a very, um, very grim stretch of the movie when he sees those people and when he basically, as some other character says to him, is sort of realizes that he's a, a pig who's been groomed for slaughter his entire life. It's yeah. just, it, it's, it reminds me, it's like the scene in Gethsemane, you know, in the, in the I don't know which, which gospel <laughs> wow. that's in, right? But isn't there that scene yeah. where Jesus basically says like, oh shit, I'm going to die tomorrow? That's right. totally the position Harry Potter's in. Right. And, and so, you know, it's, I, it's something that I wonder how kids are going to deal with. I mean, the kid who I saw the movie with, not my kid, a different kid, an older kid, obviously, was, I mean, knew the books and was ready for it. But there was still a moment when Voldemort cast that spell at Harry and the screen goes white where everyone in the theater thought, Jesus, what if in this version he really does die? So the, okay, so now we're getting to serious, serious spoiler territory. And obviously, yeah. I think anyone who's listened this far already either knows the ending or they don't mind having it revealed. But right. I was a little bit surprised that the, the death is walked back from in that way. I mean, I've been hearing for years and years and years that some major character dies at the end of Harry Potter, and it's this horrible, unhandleable thing. And, mm-hmm. and I mean, his, his resurrection comes pretty quickly after his death. There is this cool period, as you say, after the, the, the screen fades to white, where he finds himself in this ghostly version of, of the King's Cross tube station, mm-hmm. um, talking with Albus Dumbledore or his ghost. And I just sort of thought, like, okay, here we are. This is the afterlife, and this is where Harry's going to stay. But can you talk about the difference between the book and the movie and how they handle his, um, his death and resurrection? Oh, that's handled almost completely identically. Uh, I mean, there are very few differences between the book and the movie. And and I think that the death that people are referring to you, that you heard to, is Harry's death. And it is – and what's unhandleable about it isn't the actual moment of death but those chapters beforehand, the walk through Gethsemane, as you say, where he knows what's about to happen to him. He willful, he willingly accepts it. Um, I mean, it's a pain, that's as painful a section of the books as it is of the movie. But the – but the post-death, that conversation at King's Cross with a obviously delighted ghost of Dumbledore um, and then the return back to Earth when Harry chooses to return to continue the fight as opposed to being allowed to go on, as Dumbledore's ghost says, um, isn't that painful and and is in fact, I think, somewhat triumphant. I mean – he comes back to his body because he realizes there's still a fight to be had. He knows he might not win. He knows that it will be difficult. He knows that the rest of life will be difficult. But he makes that choice. You know, it's – I mean I, the, I, I'm sure that J.K. Rowling did not have this in mind. But what it reminds me of because I'm less a biblical scholar than a pop culture scholar um, is Buffy. <laughs> Buffy mm-hmm. the Vampire Slayer who made essentially – who didn't get a chance to make that decision, who found herself in heaven and was brutally pulled back by the world. Um, for Harry, it's a different kind of choice. He has the decision to make and he chooses to come back to fight um, and, uh, and, to, and to live a life. You know, and, that, and after he defeats Voldemort, that epilogue that we get of them 19 years later um, sending their kids off to Hogwarts, uh, all living happily ever after is – meant to show us this is the life that he chose. It's not a bad life. It's not an amazing life. It's just life. So do they become total muggles at the end? Like they don't do any magic anymore? No, no. They still do magic. They still, they're sending their kids to Hogwarts. Um, 
In the books, you know, it's uh, Harry. I think we don't actually ever get into what their jobs are, but they just live everyday, happy, um, ordinary wizard lives. They, the, you know, what the book says is that is that Harry's scar had not burned for 19 straight years. We're given the impression that there hasn't even really been that much adventure in his life since then. That he just lives a quiet life, and the last words in the book are always well. Mm-hmm. That last that coda is where they've been aged. I don't think it's digitally aged. I think it's just aged by makeup. It was a little mm-hmm. bit odd to see after, given that we've seen these kids actually age in real time. You right. know, the idea that that we're going to believe the age makeup was a little bit of a joke. So the, the end felt a little bit flat to me, just because it, it it wasn't quite believable that it was them. Especially in the case for some reason of Rupert Grint. There's something about his just funny <laughs> doughy. I mean, he's such a sweet looking kid, and just the idea of him being this middle aged father. There was a laugh in the theater at the moment that he was first revealed and age makeup. And it wasn't because the makeup was any worse than anyone else's. It was just somehow the idea of a middle-aged Rupert Grint was hilarious. No, that's funny, though, because I bought him the most, not because his makeup was so convincing, but because they gave him a paunch. Right. Uh, which yeah, maybe that's what got a laugh, is that he, he, yeah. he, was a little bit, he was a little bit on the paunchy side. Yeah, I mean, he, sort of, he looked like me, his belly. Um, but no, I mean, that scene in the book, too, that scene feels less necessary to readers than necessary to J.K. Rowling. Like, Mm -hmm. it's clear by that that what she wanted for Harry, most of all, um, is what she wanted for herself at the time that she came up with the ideas for the books, was a quiet, normal, ordinary life. And, of course, the irony is that that's the last thing that the books gave her, and I'm sure she wouldn't trade it for what she had before. But she won't ever have a quiet, ordinary uh, life. Um, I mean, she's going to have people hounding her and wanting to know what she's doing forever. But at the same time, she did give her children a life of safety and utter security, which is what Harry gives his children and what Hermione and Ron give their children. Um, oh, yeah. Her children, and, her children can build their own Hogwarts playhouse to live in. Right. That's true. Uh, life size. They can it hire actually, Stuart Craig for a year. <laughs> it actually seems to me like there's one hole – or not quite hole, but there's a little – um, key that could lead to, if you wanted to exploit this and, and milk the cash cow for some more sequels, the way that Harry disposes of that elder wand, the all-powerful wand that that they spent the entire movie trying to get from Voldemort, right? Is is it's it, for a Harry Potter movie? It's a pretty basic destruction of the wand. He just breaks right. this wooden stick in two and throws it over a bridge. It just right. sort of seemed like there could easily be a troll down there waiting to just grab it and tape it together and start um, taking control of the world. It just seemed like in in the Harry Potter universe, you would have to pulverize it with a unicorn horn and throw it into an abyss or something to really be on the safe side. Throw it into the fires of Mordor. Yeah, well, in the book, he just buries it back with Dumbledore and then figures that once Harry dies, the wand will lose all power, which seems even more ridiculous and open-ended. But yeah, I've always thought the great the greatest idea for a sequel would just be for someone to just start like an extremely well-funded television show that's like Hogwarts the Next Generation, like where it's Harry's and Ron's and Hermione's and Ginny's kids and they get in fights with Draco Malfoy's kid and uh and you know all the professors are still there and it's you know it's a weekly series I would watch that. <laughs> or you could do a prequel that's kind of like Muppet Babies, like Harry Potter Babies. <laughs> The possibilities are endless. I mean, one of the things that I certainly hope for this, even though I desperately would love for there to be more, in my heart of hearts, I think I sort of hope that this is it. Surely it won't be. I mean, Warner Brothers will find a way. But um, I I have some – 
faith in J.K. Rowling and her ability to drop the hammer if someone really wants to do something egregious with this property. Yeah. Oh, she certainly has, I'm sure, a phalanx of lawyers on her side to keep people from using the, the names or the characters in any way she doesn't want. Mm-hmm. Thanks so much, Dan, for, uh, for coming on. I'm, I'm sad that this will be our last Harry Potter spoiler. Uh, me too, but luckily there are more nerd properties to come. All right. We'll come in for Captain America next week. There we go. See you for the audit. <laughs> Our producer is Krishnan Vesudevan. The executive producer of Slate Podcast is Andy Bowers. For Slate.com, I'm Dana Stevens.